0: This week we've been talking about love is in the air. Of course, it somewhat coincides with Valentine's Day. But love is not something that is defined by the world when you're a Christian. On the exact contrary, love is something that is defined by the Holy Scriptures of God, by the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. If you can find its truths... Then you can live by its, uh, uh, then you can understand and appreciate some of the promises that God has in store for us. But marriage, uh, in recap, is the first covenant between uh, God and the first covenant that God established on planet Earth. When in the very beginning, after he made Adam, uh, he made Eve for Adam, and then he said, Here's the deal, guys, I need you guys to be fruitful and multiply. So in your marriage, there ought to be some fruit. And you say, well, I tell you what, my my husband or or my wife, they're 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 fruit loops, you know. I don't know, but there ought to be some fruit in your marriage. There ought to be something about your life that says you are a Christian. There ought to be something together about you. If you uh, cuss and fuss and and fume with one another just like the neighbors across the street that live, uh, uh, live for the devil or live like the devil or anything in between listen to me, today's the day where in Jesus' name you can change all that nonsense because God did not put you together so that you could be at each other's throat forever. On the contrary He put you together so that you could leave what you used to know cleave together and become one flesh and now this one flesh walks around uh, doubly anointed and doubly able to do the will of God and the work of God in your life but marriage is the very first covenant that we see with God now interestingly enough uh, the very first uh, family was a bit of a dysfunctional family Uh, if you really wanted to uh, decipher it Eve, the first wife on planet Earth, uh, possibly could have uh, mentioned that she had been talking to a snake whenever she fed Adam his dinner that day. And and maybe Adam could have mentioned it, or maybe Adam knew. Uh, But either way, uh, maybe it would have been a little bit different if one of their sons had not murdered the other son. Uh, Your family ought to start looking pretty good right now when we think about the first family. They were dysfunctional. But God uses our dysfunction somehow, supernaturally, to cause everything to work together for our good the moment that you commit your relationship and yourself to God in Christ. The moment you decide to do that, God then takes all those crazy ingredients that don't make any sense separate from one another and He puts them in His Holy Spirit-filled blender and out pops this beautiful thing called your marriage that only God could ordain and only God could establish. It is a thing that God wants for you. It's not something that is a maybe. It's not something that is a kind of. If you are married or you want to be married, His plan and will for your life is for good and not evil in that area. Your spouse is designed to be a helpmeet. In both directions, specifically, the Bible says that uh, Adam needed a wife and God said, here's a help meet for you. And literally, it just means that you two are going to work together towards a common goal. How many of you know, in a relationship, if you're not working together towards a common goal, things could have some issues at the house? You've got to see in one direction in one direction only. And we see in that direction by looking through the filter of the Word of God. Banners and foxes was one of the things we brought up last week. There ought to be a banner of love over your marriage all the time. Wives, you ought to be in love with your husband. Husband, you ought to be in love with your wife. Well, I quit loving her. Well, bless God, pray about it, and let God reignite that thing on the inside of you. Because just like when you were little and you didn't like carrots, but mama said you got to eat carrots, now you eat carrots and you like them because your taste buds changed into what was right and not just what you wanted in the moment. Change your taste buds, change your habits. Little foxes spoil the vine, the Bible says in Song of Solomon. And this is all a recap, just because we're getting somewhere and we're going to try to get there pretty quick this morning. But the little foxes spoil the vine. What that's saying is it's hardly ever the big things in marriage. It's hardly ever the large things in relationships that cause overwhelming turmoil. It's usually the small things that are not dealt with that cause issues. He said this, he said that, and, and, and he said it this way. And then six weeks later, it's just been festering and bothering you, and you finally tell him about it, and he didn't even know he said it. She said this way, she did it that way, she didn't that, she did this, whatever. And then six weeks later, you say, you say honey, I, I'm so frustrated. Why'd you? She didn't even know she did it. It's the little foxes. It's the little things that come in and spoil the vine. Always protect against the small things. Never let the sun go down on your anger. It'd be better for you to not sleep for a week than to allow some kind of division to set in with your wife or your husband. You can deal without a little bit of sleep if it means getting things back in right standing or right order. We also talked about how uh, men and women in the Song of Solomon, which is a great example of how we ought to talk with our wife, how they talk. She said things about her husband like, he is like a deer jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop. You say, mine's more like a stuffed deer hanging on the wall. I don't, I don't know about the mountaintop. But the Bible says we speak of things that are not as though they were and they shall be. When's the last time you prophesied over your husband? He said, you're a good man. You're a strong man. He talks about her like like this. And ladies, this might not make as much sense today, but he said, her teeth are like lamb's wool. Her hair is like goats running down a mountain. Her eyes are like dove eyes. Which is to say, her smile lights up the room. She has the most beautiful hair even when she doesn't fix it. Her eyes are fixated on me and me alone. And my whole world is better because of it. You talk like that to your spouse, you'll start getting some thoroughbred kind of results. But you can't treat a thoroughbred like a mule and then wonder why it says, Hee-haw, all the time. This is just the Bible. This is not anything crazy or mixed up. God's plan for your marriage is that your marriage would be greater this time next year than it is today. And then two years later, greater than it is then. And then better and better. I talked to a couple not too long ago. And they were telling me about how at their wedding, five different people walked up to them and said, Well, fun's over. Now y'all are married. Everything's going to be rough. I said, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is nothing in your future that's not going to be better than your past. God is for you and not against you. And you don't have to believe the lies of the devil or the miscommunication of the world that is to tell you that something is bad in your future. It's not the case. The Bible says you're going from glory to glory to glory, but you got to know it to walk in it. In your marriage, God has established these things. We're about to dive into a little bit of a PG-13 segment, if you will. I'm going to try to say some things without turning red, uh, which I'm hoping I don't. I don't know why the band wore red today, I guess to match my face, in case something I say turns my face red. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 5, I'm going to start around 19. This is Paul talking to the church of Ephesus where he uh, wrote them a letter and he was just admonishing them and helping them to know how to live a Christ-centered life. Because you got to think about it, uh, this is, this is uh, Christianity was very new at the time, especially for Gentiles, especially for people like you and me that were not uh, Hebrew. It, it, was, it was very new, so they had no concept as to how to live. They had no concept as to what we should do or what we shouldn't do. So Paul's writing them in verse 19, he says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, which is just to say, listen, uh, fill your mind and your spirit with songs of praise of God, and see if it doesn't make things better. Verse twenty, giving thanks always for all things unto God in the Father, in the name, and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse twenty-one. Now he's talking about uh, the whole congregation. He's saying this about everybody involved. He said, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That means uh, I am purposely on purpose submitted to my brother Johnny up here. And Johnny is purposely and on purpose submitted to me, his brother Brian. Because in the body of Christ, the moment that you begin to submit yourself to somebody else is the moment that you actually become likened unto Jesus. Because Jesus said, I did not come here to be served, but I came to serve. I didn't come here to be ministered to, I came here to minister to you. So the moment you take that kind of an ideology and you begin to submit yourself one to another in the body of Christ, wouldn't the church world just be a better place if everybody was submitted to one another? So the world would be, the church world would just be a little bit better off if we were just submitted to one another. So now in the same context of being submitted to one another, we get to the place where it's impossible to offend me. What do you mean it's impossible to offend you? It's impossible to offend me. Because the Bible says that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Therefore, I'm a dead man. Walk by a cemetery and try to offend a corpse laying in the ground. That's what you're looking at. Pretty good looking corpse, if I don't say so myself. But the moment that you remember who you are in Christ, now submitting to your brother or your sister in Christ is commonplace. It's what we want to do. It's our goal. It's our desire. So now the moment if Johnny's got a problem with me or I got a problem with Johnny, I'm coming to Johnny saying, brother, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, brother, if there's anything, I apologize and I love you very much. Well, brother, I apologize to you and I love you very much. I said, I'm not holding your hand, Johnny. The moment we submit to one another is the moment we begin to look like Christ. Now, he begins to talk to husbands and wives. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourself unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Submit yourself unto your husband as unto the Lord. Now, in a religious world, in a religious environment, this scripture gets abused more than any other scripture when it comes to marriage. Because it becomes a hammer that men would use to try to convince women that they are some kind of a second-rate or second-class citizen in the house when it comes to marriage. Simply not true, not even remotely accurate, not even almost close. The Bible says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. The word submit there is a very interesting word. It's the word "hypotazo." in the greek and it literally means to willingly to willingly volunteer an attitude of co- of cooperation and of helping to carry the burden so can i say this men it is impossible to biblically make your wife submit Because what the Lord is speaking of here is a willingness to cooperate. Then he goes on to really make it clear. He says, as unto the Lord. Ladies, when was the last time that Jesus smarted off to you? When was the last time that Jesus made you feel less than valuable? Gentlemen, when is the last time that Jesus smarted off to you or made you feel less than valuable? The moment you decide to act to your wife like Jesus acts to you is the moment you can expect your wife to voluntarily cooperate and help carry the load. As unto the Lord. Can I say it a little bit stronger? Gentlemen, if you're not acting like Christ, I'm not sure she's called to submit. It's quiet in here, Johnny. It's a willing cooperation. 23. Wives, er, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body. He's the savior of the body. Gentlemen, whether you are actively or on purpose living as the head of your home, you will answer as the head of your home. When a, uh, a team loses a championship, do they fire the, the towel boy or do they fire the coach? You are the head of your house. We have two different issues in America. We have the Al Bundy couch daddy who just sits on the couch and life just goes on around him and he's got a a blank stare on his face and he's never involved in anything. And then we've got the polar opposite that's trying to micromanage every little situation and change everything and make sure that uh, nobody ties their shoe without confirming how to tie their shoes or whatever. Neither one are correct. The Bible says that you are the head like Jesus is the head. So Jesus is there and always available, never going to forsake you, never going to leave you, none of those other things. But at the exact same time, He is a strong tower that we can run to and we are safe. So if your family has a picture of you that is not the strong tower that found in any situation that they can run to you, listen to me, gentlemen, then you need to work on the tower that you have created yourself to be. you your answer for it. God's going to say, hey, how's your family doing? And according to His Scripture, He's going to ask you first. 25. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Jesus hung on a cross... And the church stuck nails in his hands. Jesus hung on a cross. But before that, the church whipped him until his back laid in shreds. I don't see any holes in hands in the building. But the Bible says if your wife were to have a bad day, if you loved her like Christ loved the church, you would be crying out to God, saying, Father, forgive her if she's done anything at all because I know her and it's not what she would want to do. It's not what she would desire to do. The moment that you decide that you are the judge and jury is the moment that you have decided that your family and your ideology is more, excuse me, that the ideology of your family is more important than the biblical definition of your family. Now, here's the other side of this. You can go either way. And, and I don't really, I can't, I can't even really convince you other than just telling you this is what the Bible says. But if you want Bible results, then you have to follow Bible example. And the Bible says clearly here, gentlemen, our wives will never have a bad day. Mine certainly hasn't. I've said this a hundred times. I'll say it until Jesus comes back or I ride out of here on a flaming chariot, whichever happens first. Uh, my wife is easily the best human being I've ever met. She, thinks, she, she always gives somebody the benefit of the doubt. She's always in prayer. She's always loving on the kids. I, I, I want to throw them in the yard, and she's saying, oh, they're so cute. I'm like, "What are you, that's not cute. They just poured milk in the TV. But in the event that something were to happen, you're called to love her like Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church by hanging on a cross when the church was guilty christ loved the church by forgiving even when the church didn't deserve it christ loved the church by healing the hurting areas of the church's life christ loved the church by shouting father forgive them they don't know what they're doing if you want the relationship that the bible teaches it's up to you to live out your part not just try to point out the speck in your spouse's eye husbands love your wife for this is love not that we first loved him uh, but that not that we loved him but that he first loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins the moment you decide the moment you decide to live like Christ in your marriage is the moment that you can see your marriage mirrored in the scriptures when you mess up man or woman When you mess up, when you miss the mark with God, when's the last time He ridiculed you? When's the last time He tried to convince you that you were not valuable? When's the last time He tried to throw His weight around, if you will? Slamming doors, slamming cabinets. Coming home late because you don't want to be home yet. This is the way God says it can work. We've just got to get in line with it and then we can appreciate it. Somebody say amen or oh me, one of the two. You're designed to be that for your wife, that strong tower. Make absolutely certain that your wife knows she can run to you in any moment. The way you do that is with fruit. The Bible says you know a tree by its fruit. You know a tree by how it bears. You know a tree by how it acts. So if you've never been the person she can run to, today's a new day. Make a commitment to yourself, to your wife, and to your God that you'll never speak another harsh word in your home. Well, you don't know what she said to me. I don't care what she said to you. You don't know what this, you don't know what that. You haven't met my mother-in-law. Everybody's got a mother-in-law. Whatever. Solomon had 700. He had 700 wives. He also slept with 60 armed men. Maybe he, maybe he was worried. Except slept with 60 armed men around his bed. Maybe he made one of those 700 wives mad. Listen to me. This is just the Bible. It's the recipe for success in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Beginning in verse number 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. This is Paul. Now he's writing to the church of Corinth. So obviously the church of Corinth had written him a letter. And they were interested in getting to know some information uh, uh, they, they were interesting, because again, Christianity was new. How do we act in this certain way? So he says, concerning what you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Meaning, uh, outside of wedlock, it's good that a man and a woman do not uh, come together uh, with sexual relations outside of marriage. That's called uh, fornication. Uh, So Paul then continues to write, he says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That clears up right there that you are supposed to have one wife for one life, one husband for one woman. That's it. Every one of them is supposed to have their own. It's not like man should have 25 wives and it's not like women should have 25 husbands. I understand the Old Testament. We're not talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about Paul, what he wrote to Corinth, and we fit into this category not into the category uh, of of everything before Matthew Mark Luke and John we fit into from the book of Acts on that is our church that is our dispensation that is our testimony that is our testament that's where me and you are and he says right here you are to have one so gentlemen if you are not married and you are uh, uh, wanting to be married or thinking about being married you need to quit the idea of running around with two or three different girls and having two or three different phone numbers because that is called SIN which will send your soul to a place that burns that is called hell Fornicators will not have a place in the kingdom of heaven, but rather will be thrown into the lake of fire, which was never built for you. It was actually built for the devil, but you're going to get chunked in there too. Just the Bible. So he says, don't commit fornication. Don't be touching women. Don't be, uh, girls and guys, don't be doing those other things. Verse number three. This is the recipe for a successful marriage. Boy, it feels heavy in here today. (laughs) Let the husband... Render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. Unto the husband. Literally. Literally that's saying. Husbands. Your body is not your own. Let, let's continue. The wife hath not power over her own body. But the husband likewise. Also the husband doesn't have power over his own body. But the wife. Which means. Gentlemen. Your body does not belong to you, but belongs to her. And if you want to experience the kind of marriage that God speaks of, then there is none of this I-have-a-headache stuff. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Nod at me. This is the place where I might blush. You don't have to say amen. But gentlemen, it's not yours to withhold. Ladies, it's not yours to withhold. There has never been, excuse me, in the research that I could do, so I don't want to call it the fullness of research, but there has not been a divorce that shows up that says, man, our bedroom life was amazing, but we just got to get a divorce anyway. It's not the case. But rather, it has become a a trump card or a, 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 a punishment or it's become one of those other things where one withholds from the other but Paul goes on to write and he says listen the wife doesn't have power over her own body the husband doesn't have power over his own body he says listen don't defraud one another except it be with consent for a time meaning don't don't sit there and tell your spouse that listen i'm not going to meet you in the bedroom anymore you don't do that don't do that husbands don't do it to your wife wives don't do it to husbands except it be with consent because you want to have some type of a, a time of fasting and prayer and, and uh, getting closer to the lord But it's got to be mutual. And here's the most powerful part of this whole thing. And he says, but then come together again so that Satan, uh, so that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Literally, if you'll say, my body doesn't belong to me, I'm not going to act like uh, uh, I'm some kind of a whatever that's going to withhold or otherwise, you are stopping the devil from being able to tempt your spouse. I have good friends, great friends, Christian people that ended up uh, being unfaithful in their marriage. And in a moment of honesty, they would tell me, man, I didn't want to, and, and, and it's my fault 100%, I'm not trying to whatever, but it was two years since we were intimate. I'm not agreeing with them. They're wrong, period. But it says right here that if you will treat your body like God says your body is, that your body belongs to your spouse, that literally, literally, it will stop the tempter from having access in that area of your marriage. It's a different thing to live for God. But this is just the recipe. We still have to apply it. We still have to do it. We still have to take those steps. So if you've never heard this before, again, the reason we're reading so much directly from the Scriptures is because I don't want anybody going home and saying, my pastor said this. No, my pastor said what Pastor Paul said to the uh, church at Corinth. This is what he says about marriage. It'll change everything about your household. Lastly, and I close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 13. Love is not a feeling, but love is a verb. Feelings are wonderful. The, the emotions that go along with love are incredible. Many of you ladies were at the Valentine's with this week. And you were saying, if he would dress like this, I would feel better all the time. Well, life's just better with some chocolate-covered strawberries, isn't it? But in your life and in my life, the infatuation of love is a powerful thing. Let me put it in perspective with your relationship with God. When everything's going great, you got the white picket fence painted, dog in the yard that listens to you everything's wonderful and you come to church and our worship team which does a phenomenal job sings one of those songs and it pulls on the very essence of your soul and you feel god that's as real as rain and it's powerful but then there's those weeks when you're driving to work and you have eight flat tires You get to work only to find out that they're laying people off. You leave from work only to find out that the dishwasher broke, the washing machine broke, and you need a new roof. And then you go to church on Sunday and you get there late because you got halfway there and realized that none of the kids had shoes on. And you walk in, and that feeling that just seven days ago was overcoming and overwhelming your body, your, your spirit, everything. You just felt God. Yeah, you, you can't find it. You, you, you say, well, when I lifted my hands, I felt him last time. So you lift your hands, nothing. Not even a goosebump. Which Side note, he's not a goosebump. You can get a goosebump by watching a scary movie. You're going through all the emotions. I love you, but there's no feeling. He is still God in your relationship with your husband or your spouse. There'll be moments, maybe on a date, maybe you get the kids to bed, or maybe you're empty nest. Whatever, there's just a feeling where you just. It's easy. And that part's fun, and I appreciate it. But love, according to the Bible, is not a feeling at all. Love is a verb, and it's a decision that you make. Same man, the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest apostle to live, in the same group of letters or letter that he wrote to the church of Corinth, It says this about love. It's read at almost every wedding. I'm going to read it in the New English translation. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious. It doesn't brag. It's not puffed up. Love is not rude. It's not self-serving. It's not easily angered or resentful. It's not glad about injustice, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let me just say it different. If you find yourself not being patient with your wife or your husband, don't lie to yourself for another moment. You're not loving them. If you find yourself not being kind to your spouse or your potential spouse, don't lie to yourself. You're not loving them. If you find yourself envying their advancement, you find yourself envying them in a way that says, I can't believe they're this, and I'm just little old this. You're not loving them. You find yourself bragging to them. Here's an example. One, one of you is driving, fill in the blank who, I don't care. And they hit the curb, and they pop the tire. I would have never done that. You've never been able to drive worth a foot. You think they don't know they just messed up? The moment you decide to brag over your wife, you're not loving them. It's not puffed up. It doesn't walk in and vaunt itself up, King James says. King Brian is here. It's not puffed up. Is it walk in the house? <laughs> There's one king, y'all. His name's Jesus. It's not rude. I know when I'm rude. It's almost instantaneous when I know it. It didn't used to be. But boy, I know it now. When I say something quick, when I say something in a way, I know it. And immediately, to the best of my ability, I start apologizing. Without exception, sometimes she'll say, I didn't even notice. That's just the quality of person she is. But when you're rude to your spouse, you're not loving them. Love is not self-serving. It's not easily angered or resentful. This is something that, 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 that takes work. This is spinach today. A lot of times we eat some cake and this is spinach Look, if you're easily angered with your spouse just stop it just stop just stop being angry with your spouse get mad at somebody else you wouldn't talk to the waiter at Dairy Queen like that but you'll talk to your spouse harsh cuz you know whatever you wouldn't say that to the young lady at Kroger if they dropped your gallon of milk and spilled it all over your new shoes, you wouldn't talk to her like that. Yeah, You'd say, it's okay, it's okay. But in the house, sometimes it's just different. And listen, nobody's pointing fingers. I, I'm saying this is what the Bible says. If you're acting that way, you're not loving them. Well, just be honest about it. It's not glad about injustice, but it rejoices in truth. Here's my favorite, seven Bears all things. If you want to try to blame my wife, you've got to come through me. I take the whole blame for the family on purpose. She's got nothing to be blamed for. But if you want to try to blame my family, it comes through me. I would venture to say she would say the same thing. Believes all things. Hopes all things. And endures all things. In a marriage, it's two people giving up their life for one life. It's two people that set aside personal aspirations for our aspirations. In a marriage, you do two things. You go from having two eyes and two ears to four and four which doubles your ability to see the positive in your life and doubles your ability to root out the things that we're working on together. Four ears doubles your ability to hear from God. But if you've got friction between your spouse and you, there's nothing the devil wants more than to have you two at odds. If you're going to be married one day, listen, this is some of the best teaching you'll ever hear. It's not filled with shouting. It's not filled with emotion. This is just what the Bible says. Give your body to your spouse. And no, listen, don't don't take that somewhere crazy. You know what I'm talking about. Just. I love that song. My life is not my own. To you I belong, I give myself, I give myself away. That's why Jesus constantly is comparing our relationship to Him like a bridegroom and a bride because it makes so much sense. Every time He could have come down on us, He goes, No, Dad, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Every time he could have said, no, 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 I'll heal you because you just got sick because you touched the doorknob and then you wiped your face and some germs got on you. But I'm not healing you because you smoked eight packs a day and you did it to yourself. He doesn't sit there and weigh it and balance it like that. He goes, I have compassion on them and I heal them all. That's why he says he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. So we can have a picture of it. He gave His whole body, His whole self for you and for me. Is there an area of your life that you're withholding from your spouse? Is there an area of your life that you don't share because you're concerned about what they would say or what they would think? You want freedom in the home. The Bible says that love rejoices in truth. This is a journey, not a destination, marriage. And I know this is a, a heavy thing to digest. But where this church is going, we need strength in every house. Unity in every home. Some of you, maybe this is old hat to you, and you've heard this a hundred times. You've read it yourself a thousand times. So, yeah, that's how we live, Great. Some of you, maybe it's the first time. But if you'll apply God's precepts in your life, you can experience His promises. Let's all stand to our feet, please.